Good evening, everybody. Is anyone tired, a bit weary? No, because <laughs> we're full of joy and hope and life. So thanks for being here, everyone. Thank heavens for rosters, I say, on a Sunday night like tonight. <laughs> and for people who are paid to be at church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, thanks, thanks, everybody. It's good to be together. It's a bit of a small group session, but so I hope you'll... Um, Bear with me. This is exciting stuff, so let's, let's ask for help. Father God, speak to us through your word. Help us even if we are weary like many of us are after the church camp to be glad to hear what you have to say in your word and to understand better your call and the wonderful mystery that we have. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to um, suspend your critical faculties for a moment and I'll let your imagination run through and imagine perhaps a Soviet cosmonaut. It's the Cold War. Let's say we're in the late 60s. And uh, he's up in space, but he's approaching the atmospheric re-entry and enters the atmosphere. His parachute goes off. He floats down and he lands oh, at the back house of that house that's being pulled down just over there. It's Sunday morning. So he gets out. I don't know, you know, the, the Soviets in those days, they had terrible technology. They just did anything to get someone into space. So they didn't know where he was. He was lost. No one saw him come down. But Sunday morning, he walks across into St. Mark's for their early morning service. And he doesn't quite understand what's going on because his English is not super duper. But he sees them reading from the prayer book and people repeating and seeming to know what's going on. Every now and then they're up and they're down and there's a cross at the front and somebody gives a talk and it's all looking very proper. So he goes for a wander and heads off and he makes it down to the Uniting Church down on Boundary Road there and he wanders in and he looks around and they're singing some old um, Wesley hymns and um, there's tapestries all over the walls. <laughs> some of them which have a cross and a dove on them. That's the way it is in Uniting Churches. Um, so what's going on? He so heads off up Boundary Road and walks into St Agatha's. And there's another cross, but look, there's this guy in white. And he's got a thing road. And there's this big focus on this elements at the front and everyone stands in a line and there's open their mouth. Oh, they're being fed and then someone gives a short talk. They sing a couple of songs. And gosh, this is strange. So he continues around the corner and ends up down in, I don't know what they're called these days, there's two, there's a Hills Alliance Church. He walks into one of the Chinese churches down the road. Um, everybody's the same ethnicity. I thought, everybody, most other people I've seen have not been Asian, and they're obviously speaking a different language in this service. And they're sitting, and it's very structured. And crosses a, heads off up the hill, back to, back to, um, Back to his space odyssey thing and happens to bump into the Danish church and he walks in there and there's this woman with a very frilly collar and there's a, there's a Viking boat hanging from the thing. But there's a cross in there and they seem to also be doing the book thing but there seems to be another language. There's not many people in that one. So finally he makes his way back down here. Oh, look at this. And he walks into Penobaps on a Sunday morning. They're all meeting in Jesus' name. And he's somewhat confused because what's going on here? This is a bit of a mystery. There's crosses 
in most or all of them. But it's strange. What are they doing? What's the point of all these gatherings that seem a little bit similar but so very, very different? Perhaps he thinks it's mysterious, all the different clothes and their hands and even the languages and the forms and the way they sing their songs. Some of them, they've got their hands in the air. Well, maybe one of them. In Peno. <laughs> he sees a couple of people at Peno doing this. <laughs> what is it? What is the mystery of our religion? Verse 16 of that passage, that very, very short passage we're looking at tonight from 1 Timothy, the NRSV, the New Revised Standard Version, translates that the mystery, without any doubt, the mystery of our religion is great. And the cosmonauts say, Amen. The old NIV says the mystery of godliness is great. The current NIV, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. How do you get that many words out of what one person says is just religion? The mystery from which true godliness springs. Well, the, the word there in Greek is this word Eusebius, which doesn't matter that much, but that word has, a, like all words do, has a bit of a range of meaning. It could be, depending upon context or similar, it could be the mystery of godliness like the NIV does or the mystery of our piety or, or, or in the mystery of our religion. It's a word that reflects the outworking of what we believe. It's, it's almost like the product of our beliefs, how we act out our spiritual or metaphysical convictions. What's the mystery of the practice of what we believe about spiritual things or the true essence of nature? We meet this statement in this letter by the Apostle Paul to his good friend and protege, Timothy. Now, Paul is the great apostle. He's the greatest missionary. He's an incredible man, a man of passion. He's an intellect. He's got experience. He's seen so much change. He's been through so much. He's, he's a truly great man by almost any measure, even if you don't like him. And he calls Timothy in the start of this book his true son in the faith. You see, as, Tim, as Paul writes this letter, he writes to this Protégé, this young man who is now a pastor in the church in the significant major city of Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, or what we today call Turkey. And it's a major, major city. 1 Timothy is Paul's personal letter. It's giving Timothy instructions for leading the church that he now pastors, this very early expression of the kingdom of God in Jesus at Ephesus. And so it's a very practical letter. Timothy, here's how you need to manage false teachers in your congregation who come amongst you. Here's proper behaviour for some church order or for overseers or deacons for those with official roles and services. Here's how you should treat widows in certain circumstances. All these issues in the life of this fledgling church. Now the verses we're looking at in some ways are a bit of a change of tack. There he is. There's his pastor in Ephesus. Change your picture, John. That's actually from the 5th century, a picture of Paul from Ephesus, from about the 5th or 6th century, but anyway, that'll do. So in the verses we're looking at tonight, Paul tells Timothy actually why he is writing this letter. And so he says there, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm actually writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, 
perhaps, I'm writing these instructions, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So he's writing so that people know how to conduct themselves. But do you notice what he says about the church in Ephesus, which is God's household? This is what we are, God's household, part of God's family in that household culture of the early Mediterranean Roman Empire. We're part of God's family. Secondly, it's the assembly or the church, the assembly of the living God, the people who gather of the living God. Living God, that's interesting. Because of course God's living. Interesting adjective. Thirdly, we are the pillar and the foundation of the truth, which is a mighty thing to say. In fact, they're all weighty statements for us to hear. That the church, that this church here in its most humble state after church camp is God's household. The gathering of the living God. The pillar and foundation of truth. But you know, these may be weighty statements for us, but I think they are even more weighty statements to the young Timothy who is pastoring a fledgling church in the city, the big and important city of Ephesus. So come back with me, if you will, to the ancient city of Ephesus where Timothy is serving. But before we do that, a quiz. Where am I? Who or what am I? I am a city in northern India, in Uttar Pradesh state, capital of my district, located on the Yamuna River. I am a railroad junction and a commercial and industrial centre for the surrounding agricultural area. There is within me an extensive trade in cotton, grain, tobacco, salt and sugar. Any brilliant people who know where that city in Uttar Pradesh is, where it is, which city am I talking about? What if I told you this was located in that city? Agra. The home of the Taj Mahal, 17th century mausoleum built for an Indian Raj for his dead wife. The city of Ephesus in the ancient world is very like our understanding of Agra. Because yes, it was a major trading and cultural city in Asia Minor, but more than anything else, throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the known Greek Roman world of that time, Agra was home to the Temple of Diana in Latin or Artemis in Greek. Just like Agra is known for the Taj Mahal, Ephesus was known for this, what's now an art, artist's impression of what the Temple of Artemis looked like. Dominated the city. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a goddess in the middle of it named Artemis or Diana in Latin who had many breasts, as goddesses perhaps do. With many, when you get a many-breasted goddess, there's probably almost certain she's going to, there's going to be a fertility cult, a cultic prostitution associated with the worship of that god. This temple had 100 massive pillars with Artemis at the centre. It was the largest building in the Greek world, hence one of the seven wonders. 
and it dominated life in Ephesus. So Paul writes to Timothy, pastoring a church of Jesus Christ, the gathering of Jesus Christ in this city, telling how people how they should conduct themselves in God's house. Hold. God's temple. Which God? Or you are the assembly of the living God. Not the dead God of Artemis that dominates your city. You are the pillar and the foundation of truth. Saying that in a city dominated by a temple, the biggest building in the whole Roman Empire, with 100 pillars. Now, it's quite fitting tonight that we are gathering post-church camp and there are we're always a small and humble gathering, but particularly particularly tonight we are a small and humble gathering. Because friends, we are the church of the living God, the assembly of the living God. We're God's house. We are the pillar and the foundation, the bulwark of truth, upholding the truth. God's people. And you might say the Opera House, wow. You might say the Taj Mahal, wow. In the ancient world they would have said the Temple of Artemis, wow. And this church that Timothy is pastoring in the back alleys, known by no one except a few officials and a few other pesty people who are concerned about how, who they are, hmm, it's not much, not very impressive. Just as we, particularly tonight, are not very impressive, but in God's eyes, we are his house. We are his temple. We are the pillar and the foundation of truth. And the church was really, as you can see, a minor player compared to the mighty, world-renowned temple of Artemis. There are inscriptions that have been found in the archaeology that keep on speaking about Artemis the Great. Artemis the Great. This was a big deal. So, you know, Paul went to Ephesus on his journeys through Asia Minor, telling people about Jesus. And in fact, there's quite a bit recorded in the Acts of the Apostles about Paul's trip to Ephesus. I'm just going to look at a little bit from Acts chapter 19. There's this guy called Demetrius who makes silver, silversmith. He makes idols because there's a big trade. You know, I'm sure if you went to Agra, there's a big trade in Taj Mahal trinkets. Well, he makes idols and people want an idol of Artemis to take home with them, to put on the mantle and to worship because she's the big deal. So uh, D D Demetrius gets upset and he says there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis will be discredited by these Christians, by what Paul's preaching in Acts chapter 19. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, the people were furious. And they began shouting, Great is Artemis 
of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theatre together, this great Roman theatre. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Now it's too dangerous. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre, which is now packed with people. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. There's this great this melee of people rushing into this Roman theatre. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexandria to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defence before the people. Shush up, everybody. No amplification. I don't know how they did it. But when they realised he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. This theatre filled with people. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. There was no, I don't know what they sing at Manchester United things. There was none of that for two hours. It was great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You rotten Jews, get out of here. You preaching Jesus, get out of here. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They sang for two long hours. In that theatre there. Paul writes to Timothy in that city, a pastor of a small church, and who or what is great? Great is the mystery of our religion. Great is the mystery of our Eusebius, our piety, our wealth for the well from which our godliness springs. You see, it's almost a repeat of that same phrase. So what is great about our religion? Well, we're told. And rather than repeating that well-known phrase from their city, Paul repeats a catchphrase that would have been familiar, I believe, to the Christians in Ephesus. Verse 16 is so structured as to suggest that it's a hymn of the early church. It's as if I was to say to us all, let's, let's um, maybe you're too young, many of you, this may not work, but if I said to you, let's worship him, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. Who am I talking about? I'm talking about Jesus. This hymn's a little bit like that. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. The mystery of our religion is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The mystery of our religion or our godliness is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. The fulfilment of God's saving plan and the appearance of his son. And so Jesus is great. His gospel is great. God's plan of salvation in Jesus is great. And so this mystery is not then a spooky thing or a puzzle to be solved. Rather, is in the New Testament something hidden which is now being revealed. The message of Jesus. And the church is the foundational 
pillar for this message. We are. We've been entrusted to uphold it, to hold forth for the whole world to see Jesus as a firm foundation. Now this hymn from 1 Timothy doesn't tell us a lot in one sense about Jesus, but there is plenty in the rest of Paul's letter that does tell us about the content of this message. Towards the start of the letter, letter Paul warns about false teachers, which is leading people away from the faith and um, weakening, weakening the foundations of the church of God, the church of the living God. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. There's a central part of this message. Jesus came to save sinners like me, says Paul. That's at the core of our message. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, this is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ. I have become... Whoops, wrong, wrong section. See, Jesus came to save sinners. He's the only way. He's the only mediator between God and man. That's the truth we need to uphold. This is the precious, precious deposit we've been entrusted with. This is where to be the foundation and bulwark of this truth. The saving purposes of God in Jesus. If you go to Paul's letter to the Colossians, now the city of Colossae is actually just up the road from Ephesus, not as prominent in the ancient world, but Paul writes letters to them. In fact, it's written, the Colossians, we're told, at the start of Colossians, it's written by Paul and Timothy. So Timothy's there with Paul as he writes this. Maybe about, we think about two to five years earlier. We read in Colossians, Peter, Paul says, I have become servant of the gospel by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known amongst the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ, the Messiah in you, even the Gentiles, the hope of glory. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God. Paul wants us to be united and to have the fullness of the mystery of God and understanding which is namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mystery is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving purposes for sinners. So let's go back to our cosmonaut who lands in Pennant Hills, who's an atheist, who's wondering what all this is about. What is the mystery of our religion? Or to phrase it another way, what are we going, what will we declare to be great? What's great for us? What's our catch cry? Great is our church because we stand in apostolic succession. We are the one true church with the papal leader, the Peter's appointee, 
standing in the line of Peter. Oh, no, no, great is our church because we serve the, the vulnerable and the outcasts. Great is our church because we have the Spirit. You can tell by the way we pray and sing. Great is our church because we represent our nation and all the traditions of our nation. We are a great people. Great is our church because we're a church where people can gather with others of their own ethnicity and feel at home and comfortable. Great is our church because we stand in a rich and long tradition and have been around for hundreds of years and have lots of big buildings. I'm not saying anybody thinks those in those other churches. I'm just generalising statements. But in one sense, there's nothing wrong with those things, to have good traditions, to be representing a nation or a group of people. But great is Pennant Hills Baptist because well, we've been here for 90 years and we have red chairs, as Uncle Nate pointed out. Great is Penno because we probably do better church lunches than you do. Because we think we're friendly. What's great about your religion? Dave Starling was challenging us about this on our camp. Where does your hope spring from? And how does it work itself out and how do people see that hope? The mystery of our religion, our piety, our spirituality and practice, the great mystery must always be centred on the person of Jesus Christ and his gospel, the objective facts of his life, death and most powerfully his resurrection which is the centre and foundation of our hope. The fact that we as sinners can find forgiveness and eternal life and peace with God by placing our lives and our trust in the Saviour, in the Messiah, Jesus. And if we find that we're putting our trust in anything else, we're, you know, if people leave our gatherings thinking that there's anything else that binds us together, we might as well go find a meteorite that looks a bit like a many-breasted woman and stick it in the middle of this building. The point of our religion, the mystery of our religion is equally powerful and equally distorted. Jesus needs to be the centre of our life and hope. So let his message of salvation, which he's entrusted to us, we're, we're the pillar and foundation of truth. We're the church of the living God, the assembly of those who come together for the living God. Let him be the one that we uphold in his gospel and his glory for his praise eternally. Amen.